all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. So to start off our interview today, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your career as a poet? A bit about myself. Um, I'm uh, a mother and a daughter and uh, an educator and uh, a poet and an author. And um, those are all things that Google would tell you. Um, I'm complicated. Uh, I'm... uh, I, I... I host a lot of memories that um, have at one point or another devastated me. Those often um, become fodder for the writing. Um, And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm a Gemini. I like long walks on the beach. I don't know. Um, In terms of the writer, that career part, um, it's pretty accidental. Um, it wasn't anything that I envisioned for myself. I fully intended to be a volleyball player until my knees gave out and then I was going to coach and, um, live my life out that way. I took a creative writing class my senior year of undergrad and it changed everything, changed my trajectory, changed me, changed my lexicon, changed how I viewed the world and myself in it, uh, changed the silences that I felt obligated to maintain. Um, It changed everything. But even as I was becoming a writer, I only intended to be a writer. I never intended to be a performer. I expected to have this um, Dickinson, you know, uh, end where maybe my grandchildren would find all of, uh, you know, a crate full of poems under my bed and discover that grandmama was a poet. I never intended to read anything out loud in front of anybody. Um, so in as much as I am a willful person, there are things that have happened that have been outside of my control. Uh, and I'm grateful for all of it. Did I answer your question? Yeah. So what changed you uh, or changed in your life that made you move from the page to performance? So I actually was, uh, you know, Colorado, Denver in particular, has a really uh, thriving, successful, astonishingly brilliant group of writers and poets here. And um, I was friends with folks who were going to these national and international slam competitions and coming back home, you know, talking about these events and they were reading constantly. There are tons of venues, you know, in, in Denver that host these kinds of things. And I would be in the room every time and I would be supporting my poet friends and I'd be sitting in the back silent and, and writing for sure, but never, never uh, eager to take the stage. Of course, my friends recognized that I was writing things. Uh, I would read things to them in isolation And they would always encourage me to try, you know, just try, slam once and see if you like it. Or just come and read this out loud and see what happens. 
I really was uninterested. The, the, the truth of the matter is they wore me down. It took a couple years. They wore <laughs> me down. And then I finally, I slammed for the first time. I was devastated and terrified, but I won. That was astonishing to me and surprising because there was no shine to my performance. There was no pomp or circumstance. I was frightened. There was a piece of paper that I was holding up in front of my face. My hands were trembling. I vomited after. Like it was, it was all of those things were happening and the room still made space for me. Um, that was pretty seismic for me as a poet, as a performer, but as a person, it's pretty seismic. Here I am, I'm showing you the most vulnerable parts. I'm showing you the stuff for which I have no answer. Um, the things I'll never be able to reconcile. I'm naming them and you're honoring me for doing so. And I just never expected that for myself ever. Um, so I won that local slam. I did a couple more. I won those, which then qualified me to compete to, it's called a slam off. So all of the folks in the city who have won at least three slams can then see if they can make this slam team, which will go to the National Poetry Slam Championship. Long story short, I made the team. I was the only woman on the team, flanked on all sides by men, good men, good men, men I knew, men I, I, I'd grown up with. Um, we went to Boston, this was 2011, 500 poets there, our team won. At that point, I couldn't hide anymore. I tried, but I couldn't hide anymore because the very next international competition was Women of the World, and I was the only woman on that team. So I had to represent Colorado, and I ended up winning that. And then, it, so that's what I mean by as willful a person as I am, there were things that were happening that were sort of outside of my control. It felt like they were. And by virtue of winning these things, there was a lot of light on me. I've never shopped a book in my life. There are publishers who have shown up to ask if they can publish my work. That is an astonishing blessing. Um, the movement from, you know, trying to exist in the shadows to being inexplicably in the light uh, was one in which I took a risk. I, I, I decided to tell the truth in a room full of strangers. Yeah. And, you know, I saw your performance in Seattle recently and you do engage with the audience and make it so that we want to hear more. Do you enjoy performing now? Hmm. I, <laughs> Enjoy is probably not the right word. Um, I am grateful for um, the ability to do so and the willingness to do so. And I'm grateful for the, the response that I, that I get, which really is not a conversation about applause, right? I don't need that. Um, I can see a person changing in front of me or, or, becoming something larger or something more vulnerable or something more feral or, you know, I can see it. I can see it. And I'm, I'm never going to not be grateful 
for being in a position to be able to introduce folks to that, right? Um, but enjoy isn't it, because I, I, I still kind of am suffering, you know, uh, um, as I'm performing. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to capture, but it doesn't matter how many times I do it. It doesn't matter how many times I peel back a layer, you know, or bleed in front of strangers. I'm still bleeding. And so mm -hmm. I feel that, you know, I, I, I do feel. And I think that's why I can't, I can't quite say I, I enjoy it. But I am certainly grateful, you know. It's like, did you enjoy, you know, when you had your, your babies? No. <laughs> no. I did not. But, man, I love the end result. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's that. Yeah, that makes sense. Speaking of the performance in Seattle, you used the word bitch quite a bit mm -hmm. in, in what you performed for us. Can you talk about that term and your use of it? As you know, we're a feminist news collective, and uh, the term bitch is often thought of as a derogatory term used for women. And so I was just wondering about your use of that term. So, so first of all, in full disclosure, I don't remember doing that, but that's because I'm every performance. I'm, 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 I'm in my body, my body as much as I am out of it. Um, bitch for me is one of those words I was happy to reclaim. Um, I, certainly recognize why it ruffles feathers and why it for some there's no reclamation there's no there will never be a moment in which they family that word and that is also a legitimate response right language is important and it's powerful and it's a culture keeper I have personally decided to take that one back because I recognized in listening to men and boys and this began when I was young the first time I was called a bitch I was defending myself against three boys who were catcalling me. When I did not give them the response that they wanted, I was called a bitch, but they also left me alone. So that signaled to me, bitch means a woman who says no. Mm -hmm. Bitch is a woman who resists, right? Like being overwhelmed or conquered. Um, bitch is a woman who will not be appropriated or misappropriated or mishandled, that the person on the other end of that is resentful of my power or that I have a voice, that I am electing what to do and what not to do with my body. That's a bitch, fine. I'm good with that, <laughs> I'm good with that. I, I, if, that's, if that's the performance of that word, as it happens, you know, as it is animated by men and boys, I'm fine with it. I am a bitch. I am absolutely that. You will never be able to tell me what to do. You will never be able to bend me to your will. I will never contort or shape shift to be small or palatable for you. I will absolutely be an inconvenience. I will keep my teeth sharp. I will be wild. I will be unapologetic. I'll do all of that. So that's, that for me was how that happened. That's one of those words that I was like, I'm going to reclaim this one. But as I said, I don't have a ministry around it. There are plenty of women who legitimately stand on the idea that it's a hurtful word and there should be no reclamation of it. It was misused um, against us and we don't wish to animate it further. I got that. 
I got that. I have to participate in language almost as an act of rebellion. I'm still, you know, I'm still a black girl, an Afro-Panamanian one. I, I, language for me and the acquisition of it, all of that has been rebellion. I speak the King's English very, very well. Hmm. And it comes with consequences, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, moving on to the topic of our podcast for this month, which is the Say Her Name movement. What do you know about that movement and have you participated in it at all? Um, so Say Her Name, I mean, it's a social movement, right? Um, mm -hmm. What it was fundamentally trying to do was raise consciousness or certainly sort of try to emphasize greater awareness about um, Black women who had been victims of police violence, extrajudicial killings in the United States in particular. Um, this was largely coming out of the idea that um, the Black Lives Matter movement was happening in reaction to Trayvon Martin dying, Eric Garner dying, John Crawford dying, um, Tamir Rice dying. It was legitimate outrage but for some the conversation was we're having these discussions that emphasize violence against black male bodies and there's violence that happens against black female bodies all the time and those stories can't be absorbed or erased in this movement so say her name Sandra Bland, mm -hmm. right? Um, a woman who was, it was a traffic stop and she did not walk out of that jail alive. Makes no sense. Mm -hmm. um, that was, my understanding of the Say Her Name movement was it was about really that, saying that we exist too, we have been and continue to be brutalized as well. And so having these racial justice campaigns like Black Lives Matter and Black Girl Magic and Black Girls Matter and all of this stuff, all of these hashtags, right, that now declare that there's a new movement happening, say her name, I think got coined in like 2015 um, in order to sort of make sure that conversations about violence against female bodies was happening and was, and was you know, and that it was deserving of a wider consideration than it had been given. Um, have I participated? I don't know that I participate in any movement, uh, which is to say that, um, you know, it's very tricky for me. You know, if I say, and, and what I'm going to say could offend some folks. Um, if I, if I say black lives matter and they do, it calls up its oppositional argument. It, it calls the opposition into the room. Black Lives Matter. This, the second that declaration happened, white nationalists had to create White Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. They had to because the opposition was apparent. Like the oppositional argument was apparent in that hashtag Black Lives Matter. I'm not there are certain movements I don't participate in, in, in the sense that like, I'm not going to march in the middle of the road and I'm not going to carry a sign with those words on it because 
for me, I have to fight differently. I'm, one, I'm not going to use the same technology that my grandparents were using. My grandfather was born in 1911. My grandmother was born in 1913. If I am fighting the same way that they fought, to me, that feels like a failure. I should be further along. My grandparents did that. They marched. They picketed. They protested. They boycotted. Those are not radical acts in 2019, 2020. They're not. Not to me. They show up as inconveniences. Power has already built a response, built, has a built-in response now to when we picket and protest and boycott. I'm not saying that those acts of resistance aren't useful. I'm saying they're not mine. Um, I'm, mm -hmm. I don't want to give emphasis to any ideology that says I can be legitimately killed. So how I talk about women's rights has to be strategy. How I talk about Black Lives Mattering has to be strategy. Because if I'm not careful, I'm fueling the other argument. Not with intent, but I'm doing it all the same. Because I'm, I'm, if I'm not careful, all I have is reactionary language as opposed to something unkillable. And I want us to be unkillable. Yeah. So, you know, it's just different for me. Um, there are certain conversations I won't even engage in because to do so means that it's legitimate for that person to have their position or to ask that question. So if I'm affirming that black lives matter, I'm also affirming the idea that, the question, there should, that there's a question about it. I need to explain to someone who has a question about why or, or, or that black lives matter. I need to now come up with language. I have to curate language for this person who is unconvinced that I should not be murdered. That is a waste of my time. It's a waste of my energy. It's a waste of my intellectual capital. I won't, I won't pay that. I will not pay that. That person is too small for me to speak to. If you have that question, you are too beneath me for me to pay attention to you. Mm -hmm. Certain movements with the best of all possible intentions, you fuel the opposition because they should never, their question about your existence and the validity of it should never have even gotten any emphasis. It should never have gotten any light. It didn't even deserve how much thought you put into it. That, that's, that's kind of where I am. Um, you know, I remember the sanitation workers in, in the civil rights movement, there's this iconic photo of these black men. I was a little girl and I saw it and they, all it said was, I am a man. That's all it said. I am a man. All these sanitation workers holding that sign. When I was in high school, I thought it powerful. By the time I was out of college, I thought it tragic. Because who, who the hell has a question about that? Right. You know what I mean? Like, it just... I do, and I think... It's similar for the feminist movement mm -hmm. because, duh, I'm mm -hmm. a woman mm -hmm. and women exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Know? Right. So that thank you. That that's really illuminating. So, you know, we're talking about police and state violence against black people and black women in particular with the Say Her Name movement. But there's also male violence against women. Can you, you know, domestic violence, 
Can you talk about that and then the possibility of that being something that white women and black women have in common? And is there a way for us to use that common ground to unite and, you know, get past our differences? I don't know if it's enough. Um, that's my most truthful statement. And I'll try to suss that out. Um, male violence against female bodies is, uh, I don't know how many civilizations got built without it, which is a devastating thing to say. Um, I say that to say it's, it's, it's ancient. It's, uh, it's tradition for, for almost any society. It's tradition. And so you're trying to upend something that is baked into the DNA of, of a place, of a culture, of a people. You're trying to interrupt that. How do you interrupt it? Um, you can train women to defend themselves. You can teach, <laughs> allow girls, women and girls to vote, allow them to learn how to read, um, allow them to have jobs. Um, do not obligate them to have children. Uh, you can do all these things. We've taken all of these steps to try to address the issue of male violence against female bodies and female psyches too. Um, you can teach women how to be warriors. You can teach them how to be spies. You know, you can... You can engage in all of these different acts in an attempt to speak to this tradition. It's a deadly tradition. How do we know that? Because you can be a woman and give birth to sons who grow up to be brutalizers, who grow up to be rapists. And it's not what you taught him. But what space the society allows permissions him to be a monster if he elects to do so. So what do women of all nationalities, hues and cultures have in common? The negotiation of male violence. That is a fact. The divide happens, I think, I would posit that it happens particularly acutely for black women and white women or brown women and white women, that there's a divide. And that divide is your reality, a white woman's reality, is that if she decides to say, um, screw men, I'm not, I, we don't need them, you know, we don't want them, you know, we're better than they are, you know, whatever. And she can do that and be in the preservation of her identity and nothing about her identity is particularly interrupted. As a black woman, if I decide to disavow myself from black men, I'm doing so while also operating under the acknowledgement that they were in that slave ship. Their backs were branded. That they, they're not the beneficiaries of privilege. That they have been groomed in a culture that has been brutal that has really normalized and naturalized violence. They've experienced it. 
They have not been permitted to be good fathers. They have not been permitted to be good husbands. And so I think the cultural reality complicates the gender discussion. Mm-hmm. Like, does that make sense? Because I'm, I can't, I am operating, I am operating all the time, always and in all ways in the acknowledgement of what was asked of my ancestors, what was insisted upon. I don't know how any of us made it out. If I'm being completely honest, I don't know how anyone, I don't know how any of us are here. I don't know how, I don't know how they did that. I don't know. But what I know for sure is that that same person who in the belly of that ship, in the dark, broken and bleeding and diseased and demeaned and humiliated, that person survived the unsurvivable, found themselves on a plantation. Do I think that that person was the most humane person, the most morally intact person, a person that had emotional literacy, emotional integrity, a person who knew how to love their kids? Hell no. Where did they get it from? How would they be able to show up like that? What they did was they survived. But I'm certain that they were also devastating in the performance of their survival. I'm sure they beat their kids. I know they did. There's a legacy of that in slavery. You needed to. You could not have your children laughing too loudly. So you beat them so that they would be quiet. It's a tradition that hangs on, you know, like really. And, and I'm thinking of all of that all the time. My blackness is not muted by my womanness. They're both loud. My womanness isn't muted by my blackness. Both of those identities are big and complicated and they stand up right next to each other. Both of them are in the room at the same height at the same time. I am often asked to mute my blackness in emphasis of my feminism. I will never do it. I will never, ever, ever, ever do it. Because I would not, that's, again, that's not what sisterhood looks like for me. And who asks you to do that? Uh, There are so many white feminists who I receive messages from uh, who struggle with certain aspects of my politics or certain things that I grieve about, honestly. Like, I... I am constantly asked to pick a side. It's, maybe that surprises you, but it's a constant thing for me. And, and part of that happens because I think for some white feminists, they find resonance in certain things that I've written. But from that place, they think they know everything that there is to know about me. And that's reductive and offensive, but it happens all the time. And so it's a thing that I negotiate constantly. You are listening to WLRN. I'm going to be in support of women because why would I not be? Because I recognize the urgency because I was a little girl who could have died and she didn't die, but I certainly could have died in days where I tried to make that happen. And it wasn't race 
in those moments. The, the, the scariest parts of my childhood w- weren't happening because I was black. They were happening because I was female. That's a fact. You know, I was never harmed mm-hmm. as a little girl because I was black. I was harmed perpetually because I was female. So how could I not, right? Like be in the full out loud, you know, um, support of advocacy for um, women and girls. I'm trying to be what I needed. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to be what I needed. I'm trying to be the tourniquet. I'm trying to be the life preserver. I'm trying to be the wolf. Because sometimes we don't need a goddamn life preserver. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't need a tourniquet. Sometimes we need a wolf, somebody to come up in there and, and set the room right again. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need somebody who is, who's not afraid of the biggest dude in the room. I'm her. I ain't afraid of shit. But that, but, but I am, I am constantly navigating all of my identities and insisting that they all get the same consideration, um, the same attention, or at the very least that no one asks me to shape, shape shift because there's this one part of me that they understand, but the other part is inexplicable or unfamiliar to them, you know, or uninteresting to them. And so they would rather me kind of keep that part quiet. I'm never going to ask anyone else to do that. So I won't give anyone that of me, you know, yeah. it's complicated. It's, it's truly complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think about when I think about the divide sometimes between black women and white women, I think about in this country, we have to start with the fact that black bodies were trafficked in and then brought to homes where white women lived. And those white women were told that those black bodies were three-fifths human, that they were cattle. They were chattel. This is chattel slavery we're talking about. Those are objects. They're not people. And she, she goes, okay, you know, <laughs> All right, but she doesn't have power. Her husband has not given her power. She doesn't have power. So he traffics these black bodies onto this plantation. It's her home. They're cooking her food. They're nursing her babies. But then stuff starts changing because now there's a whole bunch of beige babies being born. How'd they get there? Right. That's can I the, to, sure go ahead? Can I take it back to Seattle for a moment because there of was course. a key uh, thing that happened at the talk. Okay. And that was when I only saw one black woman there, and there were 350 people in the room. Yep. And this one black woman got up to the mic, and she asked the panel, "Hey." I see that you have one woman of color on the panel. That's mm-hmm. great. But I don't see any other black people here or any mm-hmm. black women here. Can you talk about this problem yep. in radical, femini- radical mm-hmm. feminism, whiteness? And Karadansky took the question and she said, Wolf is working on that. We're trying to recruit more black women 
um, women of color. And yes, this is a problem and agreed with her that it is a problem. But later on, I started thinking, is part of the problem because black women have more to lose than white women? Hell yes. In coming out publicly (laughs) against transgenderism and maybe that's why they weren't there? Yes. We are. We always have more to lose. We always, always, always have more to lose. And and that's the piece is like you have to show us why this particular risk taking behavior is necessary and urgent. And that if someone puts a knife to my throat, you won't just watch or write an op ed about it later talking about how unfortunate it is. We need to know. We need to know. And we don't have those assurances. We don't. So it it it. It puts a lot of black women in a space of inactivity. It's not because they don't agree, but it's because they know they may be the only ones bleeding. And that's been tradition too. You know, I, I'm not even sure if folks in leadership know how to have this conversation the right way. Like, because what comes up for me is even like, I don't know why, and I'm gonna have to interrogate this, you said we're trying to recruit black women. I the hairs on the back of my neck went up. You wouldn't have to recruit us if 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 the model felt like home. You wouldn't have to recruit us. We we know how to get home. Does that make sense? We we know. But you if you have to recruit us, it's because it doesn't look like home. It doesn't look like shelter. It's not familiar to us. That's a flaw in the design. You don't have right. to recruit me if I see you, you know, if I recognize home, you, no one has to recruit you to go home. You go home because you know where it is. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. That language reveals the problem. It really does. I, I mean, you know, I, don't, I won't labor too long on the point, but that right there, that language reveals itself. I right. promise you and would never have to recruit black women if the issue. If we knew you were home. And I'd like to state for the record that I was paraphrasing from my memory. I don't Mm -hmm. know for sure if that was the exact wording that she used, Mm -hmm. but um, I know that she didn't say, well, it's more difficult for black women to come out in public uh, against transgenderism than it Mm -hmm. is for white women. I know that she didn't say that and that Mm -hmm. she said something like Wolf is working on that. Um, So. Just, yeah, just but again, it's, on. yeah, no, sure. And I, but again, um, it's still revealing because I'm just telling you, we, we, we are so good at finding a North Star, Ma. That's how we are here. We are good at it. We are good at finding a North Star. So the point is, it doesn't look like a North Star. So sisters are not coming. How do we, I know that you must get tired of white women asking you this, but how do we create a home for black women in our women's movement so that you do feel welcomed and, and that it's a place for you? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, I, my relativity to and proximity to Wolf, um, part of what, why I know I have the capacity for it where other sisters don't 
is because I've never had, I, I've never had belonging. So I don't look for it. I was educated, my, my entire educated background it were, was in intensely homogenous environments. So that doesn't rattle me. I'm, I've naturalized it. Does that make sense? Like, truly, I'm, I'm never expecting to belong or expecting to find belonging um, or expecting that the room will know how to hold me, will know how to recognize me as their own. I, I never, I, I can promise you, I have never, not on a single day of my life, have I ever been able to have that expectation? Are there places in the world where you feel at home? No. No. Besides my actual home? No. No. Because the second I walk outside, somebody is interrupted. Sometimes it's black men. Sometimes it's white men. White women. Sometimes it's black women. So you don't feel home in any organization. You feel home at home. No. In your physical home. Yeah, because because I haven't found I haven't found an organization that truly knows how to hold all of these complexities. I, I really don't. I think feminist organizations are really good at affirming the feminine, like affirming womanness and 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 curating really amazing language around the urgency of womanness. They're really good at it. And then once they have all their events set up, somebody as an afterthought will think that it might be a good idea to have a black women's reading circle or a woman of color tent or a no, 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 no. But, but it's, it, there's still blind spots and they're apparent. They're apparent in the programming. Again, I'm not saying that this, these folks, that folks are being nefarious. I'm saying these are blind spots. I'm saying you haven't had to pay attention to it. And so you don't. And then the, the second that you do, a lot of times it feels like an afterthought. It feels like an accommodation. And and we hold it like that. Now, some of us can do that, hold, can hold it without resentment. Some of us cannot. Some of us hold it with resentment. And our jaws are clenched the whole time. But where else do we go? Where else do we go? Because we, yes, we're black girls, but we're girls. And we were held down in a basement once and we know what that feels like. And we want to be with people who know what that feels like. To your knowledge, besides the Say Her Name movement, are there any black women's organizations that are working on the complexities of being both black and women? I pray they exist. I don't know how they couldn't, but you know, I don't know who they are. And maybe that's the evidence that they exist because in order for them to be truly successful, it's probably got to be another underground movement. It's got to be some underground railroad shit. I mean, I think it does have to be that. Um, and maybe that's feel, why I don't know about them. Do you feel sisterhood and solidarity with your fellow black women? Sure. Yeah. In society. For sure. Yeah, for sure. We we don't, um, you know, there are there are we find confluence and certainly points in which we we find conflict, right? Um, but because of our the because of our cultural identity and things that were walked through, things that are still encoded in our DNA, yeah, we 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 hold space for each other because 
what happens if we don't, you know, what, what happens if I decide I can't, I can't hold a space for you because you're a Pentecostal Christian. I certainly don't rock with your ideology at all. In fact, I think it's infantile, but I won't let nobody kill you. You know, I think it's that. And I think, and I think sometimes what happens is, or the feeling that I've had on more than one occasion is like with white feminists is that they love the things um, that I've said uh, upon which they found agreement, but they're not going to offer me any protection. Wow. I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, it's okay. I don't intend to make you feel anything. Um, I just think these are the things that happen because all of us are conditioned to be, I don't know, tribal or to look to what you know, to that, to that which is familiar. And is that racism? What? To look to what you know, to what's familiar. No. I don't so, think so white women, white women gathering under the name of feminism and wanting to create a space for black and brown women to be there, but unsuccessfully so, as you mm-hmm. described, mm-hmm. Uh, those white women are not necessarily being racist. They're just nope. in a group that is a blind familiar. Spot. Yeah, it's a blind spot. It's a blind spot. It's not nefarious. It's it's a blind spot. You know, like, I, this is a really pedestrian example, but I, for, I don't, countless performances, right? I, what I want to organically do is get off of the microphone. I hate, I hate microphone. I hate it. So if there's a microphone on a stand and I'm performing, what I want to do is walk away from the microphone and walk toward the crowd so I can connect. That's what I want to do. I have done a bunch of shows like that and finally, this hearing impaired student on a college campus, she, she didn't interrupt the show, but when the show was over, she came up to me and she said she was sad because she was a huge fan and she had been waiting months and months to see me and she didn't hear a word I said because I walked away from the microphone and I did not take any accounting of folks who have a hearing impairment. It's a blind spot. I've never, I haven't done it since. I can tell you that. Or I right, and that doesn't mean, and that blind spot doesn't mean that, that you I don't give hold any hatred exactly. or intolerance exactly. towards people who are hard of hearing. Exactly. It means I, it's not a thing that I've negotiated, so I didn't know to check for it. And then someone stepped to me and said, hey, <laughs> you might want to check for this. And I do it now. I'm conscious mm-hmm. of it now. What do you want white people to check for, white women in particular? I want them to think about what they're asking of black women. If they think feminism is a monolith, if they think woman is, womanness is a monolith, if they've even bothered to engage in what our cultural identities, how our cultural reality complicates certain elements of feminism how, how how we how we were groomed is not in alignment with how they were groomed that 
See, I don't know, his, historically speaking, I don't know if white men shepherded white women through the woods to help them escape an oppressor. But black men sure the hell did with black women. Does that make sense? So it's like, we, it is complicated. Right, and it feels more complicated than, like, you can easily remember now at your performances to make sure you use the mic and mm-hmm. that hearing impaired audience members can hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to whiteness and blackness, it just feels so much more complicated. It is. And it's always going to be. It's, it's always going to be complicated. But in the absence of any effort, we'll hurt each other. I mean, really. Or we'll, we'll ignore each other and I'll just let you be hurt. I'll act like I don't see it. Like it doesn't have anything to do with me. Do and it you does. Think, do you think that WLRN, which is a radical feminist collective of news media activists, by interviewing you and by doing our podcast on this topic, does that feel like an effort? It doesn't feel like the absence of one, you know? I'm not, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm not critiquing you or, or, or you know, trying to, you know, assign some value to your platform or your politics or any of that, right? Like, I'm, I'm always going to be willing to have conversations that I think are urgent, um, that I think are mat- that, that I think matter, that I think are, are material to all of us figuring out a way to stay here without lacerating each other. I'll have those conversations. I will also have those conversations with zero expectation. None. I don't have an expectation, you know? I don't need agreement. I don't need people to come around to my way of thinking about a thing. That's not what I need. I am more interested in folks being willing to hold a space for all of my parts not just the things that are palatable, because I'm doing that work all the time for other people. I'm holding that space for other people because I want to be the beneficiary of it. So I'm grateful for invitations like these, you know, to have these kinds of conversations. These are the conversations that most folks find to be pretty uncomfortable, especially when you ask a question and I don't have an answer. I do not have an answer for how we sort of deal with the divide. But part of what I think can happen is in naming the divide, we are operating in the acknowledgement of that divide. And when you are operating in the acknowledgement of the divide, you watch your step. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. Thank you so much, Dominique. You've, You've given me and our listeners fodder for thought, as you do at all of your performances. And it just means so much to me and to our collective that we were able to have this conversation. Is there anything you would like to say in conclusion 
to our largely radical feminist and lesbian feminist listeners? No, just keep going. Keep going. 